Start to Sale is brought to you by our founding sponsor, Smart Water. What makes Smart Water delicious? It's pure, it's crisp, it's vapor distilled with electrolytes added for taste. Learn more at drinksmartwater.com. Welcome to Start to Sale, the show that asks the brightest entrepreneurial minds the most pressing questions, like how do you keep your skin aglow while running a business? Funny you should ask. Our next guest might know a thing or two about that. Up next, we'll talk to Jane Rwand of Dermalogica. I actually met Jane through Opportunity Fund, which is the nation's largest microlender and anti-predatory payday lender. I happened to be on the Southern California board of Opportunity Fund, and we had been starting this partnership with Jane's Werwan Foundation, which specifically aligned us both on a mutual interest to fund female entrepreneurs. I reached out to Jane, and, and we sat down in my ice cream shop one day to just talk business, life, get to know each other. And I was just so blown away by her intelligence, savvy, compassionate energy, and, and you know, also really the ability to see the big picture of a brand's mission, especially because she had been running hers since 1983. Um, when she left our headquarters, actually, she turned around on her way out and announced to my team that Cool House is the Dermalogica of ice cream. And we were all just stunned and honored by that mic drop. Um, it's certainly something to strive for. In this episode, we'll discuss how and why Dermalogica had the remarkable ascent that it did, from an identification of white space in the skincare market to an original take on grassroots marketing to an idea of educating and really empowering estheticians with information and top-notch product. So incredible. Um, this brand was truly built from scratch and scaled all the way to a successful exit to Unilever in their prestige portfolio. What got them there is very much the willingness to take a point of view about quality and standards, one that definitely would not please everyone. As she says, We've got to be prepared to be polarizing. We've mm. got to be prepared to piss off 80% and turn on 20%. But make that 20% so dedicated and devoted that they truly have gained an obsessed following. Erin, I think we can all relate to this idea of building a brand. It's not about casting a net to everyone. It's not about pleasing everyone. Um, but it's about having your target audience fall in love. Can you speak to how this philosophy has impacted Ovenly? This really speaks to me in the sense that for Agatha and I, when we were creating Ovenly, we always thought to ourselves, we are going to make the most delicious, best products that we can. And it's not going to appeal for, to everyone for two reasons. One, sometimes we do flavor combinations that people don't like. And we are not there to make the most generic baked good. We want to surprise and delight people. And so that was a big piece of what we wanted to do. And when we first opened, we definitely saw reactions where people didn't understand certain flavor combinations or had never seen like currants and rosemary together. And it kind of freaked people out. But the people who tasted that product completely fell in love right away. And that gave us energy and us joy to keep sticking to our guns with what we loved. Also, we never, ever, ever wanted to skimp on quality. And I think that even to this day, the minute we start thinking about expanding in a way that would cause us to produce product that wasn't as delicious or that the quality wasn't isn't as high is the day that I feel like our brand loses value. And I think that in life, generally, you cannot please everyone. But you do start really getting that brand loyalty when you say, you know what, I'm going to stick to this, I'm going to make the most delicious product, the cost is going to be reflective of the quality and 
craftsmanship that go into it. And it's not going to be for everyone, but for the people who love it, they're going to be forever clients. I'll add something to that. I think there could be you know, something to consider at stake when you really commit to making that 20% totally thrilled by you. I think, you know, for us, um, price does come into this conversation. When we went from, you know, being a truck and shop operation more exclusively to um, expanding into grocery, we made a very specific decision that we didn't want to compromise anything about the quality of the ice cream sandwiches, which is what we launched in grocery with. Um, and I also didn't want people to feel or or to even have to question that they're getting anything different from the more boutique uh, truck and shop setup. So, you know, we went out the gate saying this is going to be, you know, a $5 ice cream sandwich because we're going to deliver on everything people have come to know us for. And that was a dollar fifty more than the current most expensive single serve novelty on the Whole Foods shelf at the time. But if you lowered the price, which is not just about lowering price, it's about compromising quality standards, that means that, you know, maybe you could reach more people. Or do you stick with what your vision is and just be sure to deliver so much joy and happiness and deliciousness and taste to that smaller audience? And ultimately, that will lead to a more successful formula. And that's what we did. We went with the latter. Um, Personally, I have to say that $5 for two delicious cookies and a big scoop of ice cream is still, I think, a very good deal at the end of the day. But um, we definitely went for we're going to go to the top of the market and we're just going to make those people obsessed. And um, I think the hope, too, is that when you can do that, you do create a strong enough following that a piece of that other 80% does become interested anyway. Um, so th- that was really, you know, a risk to take, but I'm glad that we did it. So let's get into that 80-20 with Jane. My name is Jane Werwand, and I am a professional skin therapist. And I emigrated here to the United States in 1983, saw a gap in the market for professional highly trained skincare techniques. Not enough skincare salons were successful and I'd come from Europe where it was a huge industry. Spotted the pain, decided the opportunity was education and started a training company called the International Dermal Institute. Three years later, because my students told me they had no products to sell, I launched Dermalogica. And as simple as it sounds, it was uh, just about that simple and ton of hard work. Where can we buy the products now? And also tell us your favorites. Oh, it's like naming my favorite <laughs> child. Um, well, that's easy to do, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But we don't say. it. Uh, Dermalogica is available in um, over 42,000 doors, wow. or salons. Every single one has a professional skin therapist there ready to advise you. But it could be your neighborhood skin center. It could also be somewhere like Ulta or Blue Mercury, which we also supply, and they have skin therapists. How many countries? 106. Wow. We make every single product here in Southern California and ship it from Los Angeles, so we haven't outsourced anything. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. And favorite product, we'll assume, like you said, it's just, you can't, it depends on the day of the week. The one I couldn't live without, (laughs) if I had to pick one that I can't live without, it's probably Special Cleansing Gel, which was one of our first products. It's a great soap-free cleanser. It removes all of your makeup, mascara. You can also wash your hair with it 
and body mm. in a pinch. And if you ever need to wash out your underwear in a hotel room, I know from experience, you'll slush it around in a sink, <laughs> hang it up, and it's all good. Amazing. I'm like a life hack. Yeah, yeah it is. A real, Absolutely. Um, that is actually the one I travel with. So those extra <laughs> tips from the source, really good to know. Very good. <laughs> I'm like, what are the hacks you can do with the daily exfoliant? Because that's the one that I use, the powder. Yeah, daily microfoliant. Well, yeah, that's fantastic that. in the shower to use it on damp hands to exfoliate your skin. And then when you're going out and wearing a sleeveless top, you just use it on the backs of your arms to give a really silky smooth finish to your arms. I wish I could do that right now. <laughs> but I um, thought you were. Yeah, well, let me go. No Is one can shower see us. in the, the beauty of radio. <laughs> <laughs> we're all just exfoliating and chatting. Yeah, this that was clothing optional, great. right? Yeah, I yeah. was told that. Okay, good. I, yeah. don't, I wanted to make sure. I'm actually going to go do my laundry now great. as we're talking Love based it. on your tip. It's great. So... Early in your career, I read that there was an older woman who came in every two weeks for treatment. Yeah. And when you told her that she didn't need to come in that often, she basically said, no, I want to because this is the only time I get touched. Yeah. Um, what a, I actually just get chills thinking about that. Um, how did knowing people needed that human connection guide you as you built your business? Was that a pivotal moment for yes. you? It was everything. Her name was Mrs. Hurd, hmm. and um, I see her right in front of me now. And she was coming every two weeks, as you said, Erin. And, and when I, I felt bad, I felt sort of guilty in a way. I mean, I was 19 years old. I didn't have any money. And I, I really, maybe I was falsely sort of judging her, but I thought, well, she's coming on two buses. I knew she had a bus pass because I saw that, you know, and she would, she would give me a very, very small tip. And it, it just made me feel that she was coming in every two weeks and maybe that she felt like somehow she'd been told this and I felt awkward about it. So I said to her she didn't have to come and she had just hesitated for a really brief moment and then she put her hand on mine, which is critically important. So she touched me and she said, well, if you don't mind, dear, I'd like to keep coming as often as I do. This is the only place anyone touches me. And it was so powerful because she was saying it in a very kind way she wasn't self-pitying what she was revealing to me was that she was lonely and at 19 I didn't really understand exactly what she was sharing with me but I knew it was powerful and then very quickly after that I emigrated to South Africa and I actually was staying in a small little cottage and I didn't know anybody in Cape Town. And one evening I was really feeling lonely. I was so homesick. I didn't even I didn't have enough money even to buy a magazine or anything. So I plucked up the courage to just walk next door to the I didn't even know who lived next door and knock on the door and just say I just moved in and I haven't unpacked everything. It was a lie. I only had a suitcase. <laughs> um, maybe they had a magazine I could read. And I did. And, and the woman was very kind and sweet and gave me a magazine and off I went. But I went back. I was home within three minutes. And I just sat there and I thought, there's no one I have to talk to. There's, I, I have to get connected. It just realized really quickly. And then I was 20. What Mrs. Hood had been saying to me, it's guided my whole career. Wow. It's so powerful. It mm -hmm. is so powerful. So in, in what way? How has it affected your leadership style? And the way you connect with people. I know that you can be a strong and effective leader and you can also be kind. Mm -hmm. Kind doesn't mean weak. And I think that's a, you know, oftentimes people feel that you have to be unkind in order to appear strong. I think it's the exact opposite. Bullies are unkind and they're very rarely strong. Kindness is a, is a great leader. And 
Raymond and I, he's my life partner, my husband, we started the business together. We both share that point of value system. And you can you can be letting somebody go, you can be terminating somebody, and it doesn't mean you have to be unkind. I think it's important to always lead with empathy. And I also think it's a mistake when we hear as as women leaders, you know, I was started the company in 1983. So there were very few women, lots of women entrepreneurs, but very few successful CEOs who were women then. And people, I would be on panels in later years and I'd hear people say, well, you know, don't you mustn't cry at work and you can't be emotional. You've got to be. And I completely disagree. I think if you love what you do, especially as an entrepreneur, you better be emotional about it you better show it you should bring yourself big authentically every single day because there's only one of you someone else has got another cleanser but there's only one of you so you must lead distinctively and if you if you you know a crier and you're doing it in a way that's truthful to you I honestly don't have any problem with that I think it's fine and I think that empathy you could have allergies yeah exactly you could <laughs> and you can just say I'm a crier I'm sorry that really touched me <laughs> or whatever you know I, right. think, I think it's fine so I empathy I've I try and lead every conversation I consciously think to myself uh empathy you know be kind you, you can be strong and lead and be kind are you just to elaborate on that are you kind of suggesting in some way that this is something women really bring to the table in particular do you think that as hopefully the face changes of leadership that this element will become stronger that human connection that brands have i don't think it's gender specific i think that however women are often told that we are more emotional and therefore don't bring that to work and that might be fitting maybe in a corporate structure. But I know as an entrepreneur, and especially in an industry which is all about touch and human connection, it's inappropriate. You've got to bring yourself and you've got to bring your kindness. I mean, I personally have found that the times I've connected most to my staff, mm-hmm. to my investors, are the moments that I am just the most vulnerable and really yes. clear and talking about my needs and how I feel and how that affects me in a real way that's not um, demanding. I think especially in the leadership context with staff, explaining why a certain thing needs to happen, those mm-hmm. are the moments that I feel more connected to what I'm doing. And I mm-hmm. think it's it's so important to um, success. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's a comfort for people to hear what you're saying, because I think if you if you identify with with kindness as a um, characteristic that, you know, is is how you want to operate at work, and that's your kind of professional identity. Mm-hmm. I think some people fear that they will have to become jerks to get to the top. Mm-hmm. You know, I know personally, you know, seeing some examples of big time CEOs that you kind of grow up with, mm-hmm. I always thought like, I don't want, but I don't want to feel like I have to mm-hmm. do all these terrible things to do something Right, great. I don't want to be that person, and, so and that's not who you are as right, a person. Right, you just so, thrive as who you are. Right, what have you gained as a leader if the entire time you're actually pretending you're someone else? Yeah. That doesn't feel successful to me. That doesn't feel like you have a personal accomplishment. And I think you have, we have to just keep ourselves on task. Just a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I believe in the power of apology too. Mm, a couple of absolutely. weeks ago, I was looking at something and it was a packaging piece at Dermalogica and our head of marketing, VP marketing, came into the room and I had it in front of me. And I said, is this on market, out in the market already? And he said, yes. And I said, oh, my God. And he said, why? And I said, because it's bloody ugly. <laughs> and I saw as I looked at him, I saw in his eyes, he felt stung. I mean, and he just said, oh, well, you know, people like it. And, and he left. And I thought, that was so unkind of me. Never mind rude. 
So I wait. I I thought about it for a moment, and then I went straight to his his office, and he wasn't there. And I wait. I, it was a couple of hours later. I saw him in his office, and I walked in, and I said, "You know, I have to tell you, I'm I'm apologizing for what I said. Not that I didn't. I don't believe it because I do. <laughs> um, I, however, that's a different the conversation. Yeah. It wasn't my best self. It was unkind, and and I'm sorry." And he nodded and, and I could see he was nodding to say yes, he accepted. And yes, it wasn't my best self. And he's worked with me for over 20 years. So he knows that. And so you have to hold yourself accountable to it. And you know, when you've done something, you think, oh, I don't feel really good about that. Well, then do something about it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I love that. Yeah. How do you think this human connection and empathy and even human touch has helped you to build at first that training business. So you were training other skin therapists first before mm-hmm. Dermalogica. Um, people were flying to Los Angeles. They, you know, they'd come and learn from you. Is Was there a community piece that developed after yeah. making these types of connections with people? And Yes, my students would come in and we were up, basically the plan was we were upskilling them. So they had already achieved a license, a state board license um, to do skincare. And it was a 600 hour training, which is four months. And I'd gone through a two year full time training and a one year apprenticeship. So I knew that they didn't have the skills to be successful. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that they didn't have ambition or desire. They just simply didn't have the skill set. So I would say to them, "Um, our job here today day in the classroom is to give you the skill set you need to be outrageously successful. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you, I'm a really firm teacher. I'm a tough teacher. It's like teaching ballet. You can't almost be on point. You're either mm-hmm. on point or you're off point. And I'm going to tell you. And I'm telling you because I want you to be a prima ballerina. I want you to be a great skin therapist. I want you to be able to provide for yourself and your family. And I'm going to drag you kicking, screaming and biting if necessary to your optimum level of success. And let me tell you, this is not just a purely, you know, uh, altruistic endeavor. I'm doing it because if you are more successful from taking classes, you're going to come back. Mm -hmm. And we both have a win-win. And you know who wins ultimately? Your clients. Mm -hmm. Because they're going to receive a skin treatment that gives them incredible results. And they will feel your humanity in your touch. And it was... I mean, honestly, my students are so fantastic. They were like, yes, like we're on board. And I would Mm -hmm. say to them, and if what I've just said doesn't fit with why you came here today... We're going to take a five-minute break. You can get some water, go to the restroom, and if you leave, you can leave now. Hmm. I only wanted people in the room that were on a mission. So I was purposefully being a bit polarizing. Mm-hmm. And I never had any... Well, I had one person leave once, and the reason was we were located cheap rent at next door to the Social Security office in Marina del Rey. And after I finished speaking in the five-minute break, they asked me if this was where they could get their benefits. And I said, oh, no, <laughs> that's next door. And they said, oh, well, you know, good luck. I mean, they were completely into what I was saying. That's the only time anyone Very inspired out. before yeah, they exactly. got their Social Security. Yeah, it was all good. That's amazing. Yeah, that's so, so it definitely, you know, I think that uh, it's, it's always informed my teaching. And, you know, there's an expression, it's a Buddhist expression or a Chinese expression, I don't know who the heck said it, but (laughs) I was told it many years ago, which was if you back a person into a corner, you better make sure there's a window there for them to jump out Mm. of. So in other words, you know, you let someone save face, you don't back someone into a corner 
that just belittles them or whatever it is. So anytime I'd have a student that wasn't really doing as well with the technique and they needed a bit more help, I always took it upon myself to say, you know what, I'm going to, let me rephrase how we spoke about this. I want to, because it's, I, I don't think I've explained it properly because I can see a lot of you are struggling with it. So let me just think of another way of saying it. And I would always take it upon myself to accept that responsibility because it's not the student who doesn't learn. It's the teacher that hasn't figured out how they learn. Mm-hmm. And I would share all those kind of things with my students and, and, you know, they got it. They were on board. And then when we came to launch the product, of course, they were ready. They would say they were our tribe. Mm-hmm. They would say we bleed grey. Mm-hmm. That's wow. the colour of Dermalogica packaging. Wow. I know, and that became a watchword. It's beneath the skin even. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Did you see, I, I mean, I understand that a lot of these skin therapists are entrepreneurs themselves. They yes. are building up their own clientele, they're building up their own businesses. Did you see any of your students go off and create business partnerships with people that they had met at these classes or go off to launch really big companies? Yes. (laughs) Tell us about a few of those. So, you know, this was the, the... the very beginning of the whole industry in in the United States and California was leading, but there were still only seven states out of 50 that you could even get a license to be a skin therapist. It didn't exist. In some states, you had to be a veterinary assistant to be able to do skincare. It was crazy. They were bundling up these these licenses, wow. and in a Those lot pets you had will have the best skin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in a lot you had to be a nail technician or a manicurist, as yeah. it was mm. called then. So they would bundle up these licenses and the right. training wasn't good. So there was only seven out of the fifty states that even had a license. So these these early students were all wanting to have their own business. That was it. Ninety eight percent of all skin therapists are women. This is an industry dominated mm-hmm. by women. And women own 64% of all the salons in the world. And that includes wow. hair, nails, skin. So this is a women entrepreneurial industry. So they were coming and they, I mean, I'm thinking of one student I had, one of my very first students, her name was Beryl Gosling. And she was a hairdresser and she wanted to do skincare. And so she came to me, she said, I want you to train me and I want to be the best I can be. And I said, you got it and we'll work together together. And she trained with me all the way until she retired, which was about five years ago. And um, her first thing was she said, I'm going to start giving skin treatments to my clients, which she did over the backwash in the hair salon. She then said that she was going to rent a room in a hairdressing salon, which she did. She then got creative and said, I'm going to rent an ex-dressing room in a clothing boutique, which was called the Dutch Door. And she was doing all this in a little town in the foothill area called Glendora. This was not Beverly Hills. Mm-hmm. This was not New York. She was in Glendora. She went on to open a 16-room, multi-million dollar day spa, as it was then called. She employed about 30 to 40 people wow. and retired selling that business. Oh, she also bought the building that the wow. Dutch door was in. She took over the Dutch door, took over the whole building That's and smart. bought the building. Mm-hmm. She then sold that to a plastic surgeon who took those premises and made it into a med spa because she was ready to retire. Wow. And I mean, I can think of people like Marla Beck from Blue Mercury, who's of course an incredibly mm-hmm. successful entrepreneur, started Blue Mercury because she couldn't find Dermalogica when mm. she was uh, living in Boston. When, I think it was when she was attending Harvard. I can give you that story. but the And the stories that are equally as important to mm. me are the stories like Beryl because Absolutely. I see them in class and I and I saw that journey all the way through and I could repeat that story tens of thousands of times. That's amazing. With different wow. people. 
it's incredible to empower this many others. Yeah. Um, speaking more about the the therapist, because it's so interesting that within this, you know, your trajectory and story, there are so many other stories really baked into that. Mm-hmm. And you talk about um, talk a good amount about about the therapist really being magic for your brand. Yeah. And how in so many ways that's allowed you to grow and scale the way that you did. Um, it kind of it's I, I think when I read about your story, the more I think like just how much was ahead of its time um, in terms of even even this idea of therapist as magic, kind of like how we think of today's brand ambassadors and in consumer brands. Mm-hmm. But I think it, that was such a progressive mentality. Um, I'm just wondering if you can kind of speak more to to that magic and what that magic really meant for the brand. Um, and also, how do you scale that? Because, you know, it's it's interesting hearing, I mean, how personal your connection was with the students, but as things are getting bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. and there's more and more therapists who are using Dermalogica, how do you mm-hmm. how do you maintain that that like level of intensity? And because that's so incredible. Clients. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think the key thing is in any business you build, you your culture of your business is absolutely critical. The business drivers of any business are usually, you know, sales, education, marketing. Um, for us, education, but slash, you know, communication, fill, fill that in for your own business. But without the culture embedded in the business, you start veering off, you lose focus, you're not quite sure what you stand for. Oh, well, maybe this sounds good. Oh, this is the new best thing. We better jump on that. You'll lose it. And you must protect the culture of your company with everything you have. And so very quickly, we when we got to about 35 people, and sort of enough people that not everyone was at our house for spaghetti every night and box <laughs> wine, which was the early days. Way ahead, but it's time too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you realize you've got to start embedding this. You've got to start making it concrete and we called it visioneering Mm. and we said you know we've got to visioneer everyone that comes in sure you've got your HR training but you've got to be visioneered this is the Dermalogica DNA this is how we develop the packaging this is what we were thinking about this is why we teach why what the early students were we really built those it's almost like I I think Disney does a great job of this where you know you really understand you've not joined just a company that makes movies or content you've joined a place that promised the happiest place on earth I mean that's a hell of a statement to make and so how do you you bake that in and you've got to write down everything from the language you use to right down to you know the color the font style and um, and the color that you use the everything you can think of that conjures up your culture the kindness the empathy the the how we we serve the student and the customer so if you're walking through Dermalogica you might be on your way to meet somebody that you think is important in the company if you see a student that's looking a bit lost or eating lunch on their own you go over and speak to them because without them we don't have a paycheck we don't have a company so we just embedded that and we kept driving it forward you know if I heard somebody make a comment which had happened along the years of you know a disparaging comment about skin therapist or or because of the training, like they didn't go to college. I didn't go to college. They were out. If you if you don't understand the power of our culture and the brand, if you don't understand who's making it all happen, you can't be here because you have no ability to articulate what it is that we're doing. The skin therapist brought us to the party. And when I was 16 years old, my mum, who was widowed at age 38 with four girls to raise, a mm-hmm. great example of providing for your family, <laughs> mm-hmm. she said to me, you know, where are you going? I said, I was going to a party. And she said, all right, just remember, you leave the party with the person you went with. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> 
I said, okay, I didn't really know what she was talking about. <laughs> she was absolutely right. And the other piece she said was, you leave before your dress is wrinkled and your makeup smudged. That's a really good piece of advice. <laughs> so this idea of the skin therapist was critical. And I never missed an opportunity to tell them, without you, we're just another product. We support you. We will make you more successful as you will us. Together, we will do this. And if we don't ever at some point support you or you feel let down by us, I want you to tell me. Mm. Call me personally. And if we don't do something about it, you should look for another product. You deserve better. That's so amazing. I think you know, the visioneering and just that clear communication mm -hmm. um, that you speak of, because I think, especially with founders, you're, you're so wrapped up in what you're doing that you kind of make an assumption like, oh, everyone knows yeah. what we're going for. And this is what our brand is about. And, and you're don't. operating and they really don't. No, and unless really don't. you put it on the page and make it your DNA, like you're saying, or just say, mm -hmm. tell me if this isn't clear. It really just gives that opportunity for it to be so much stronger because there's something yeah. that's accountable to all of it. And they feel like hopefully they have a voice, you know. Yeah. In, in being part of it too. Yeah. And even if, even if you know, the years after when I wasn't teaching personally in the classroom, anytime I was in any of our schools, we've got 40 schools around the, around the world, I would always go into the classroom mm. and say hello to the student, thank the teacher, say hello to the students, thank them for being part of it. And, you know, take a few moments to tell them why it was so important. When did this term corporate culture surface in your life? I don't think I knew that term no. when I started or had not, it took me a while to know that term. So is that when did you start really thinking about that specifically as a thing to build and to maintain? Really early. We um, we were in this cheap office next to the social security office in Rune Doe and next door was a print shop and uh, an independent print shop and Ray went in to get something copied. I mean, this is way before the internet. This is before, we'd be barely at fax level. Maybe right? it was right. before Kinko's <laughs> yeah. even. Yeah. Oh yeah, definitely before exist. Kinko's. And um, word of mouth meant exactly that. You had to find somebody and say it to them because otherwise <laughs> no one knew. Anyway, Ray went next door and there was this older guy. He was in his 60s. I say older, you know, now that seems like quite young. But um, <laughs> And his name was Jerry Dobin. And he had been an ad exec in New York and was retired. And his wife worked at the print shop. Anyway, he says to Raymond, what do you do? Or who are you? And what do you do? He's a friendly New Yorker. And Ray told him, I'm next door at the International Dobin Institute. And this guy said, uh, really, you need me. And Ray said, I, I don't think so. I mean, do you do skincare? And he said, no, no, I've watched what you're doing and I've watched what you're printing. You need me. So wow. Ray said, well, I don't think I can afford you. And he said, all right, listen, I'm going to come next door right now. What are you doing? So Ray said, I'm just doing some printing. He said, I'm coming next door with you. Did you know he was an ad exec at this no. point? Or is this just the print guy? No, he was a guy in a red bobbly sweater. And he said, uh, I'm coming next door. I'm going to spend... 90 minutes with you and you're going to pay me by buying me dinner so ray comes next door with this guy i said what is going on where he said you know jerry is come and he went anyway long story and it is a hilarious story but jerry made us drill down to the why he kept saying mm. okay so tell me what you do here and i said well we're teaching class he's good no what do you do here and i said I'm teaching skincare classes and I'm te <laughs> and he said, not enough. What are you doing? And he went on and on and it was so frustrating. And then at some point he said, okay, so now we know what you do and we know how you do it and we know who you are. Why do you do it? And he basically said, until you nail that, 
And until you put that in writing on all these bits of paper you keep printing, no one cares a damn. Yeah, there is a thing. I just couldn't remember the author's name. Start with why. Yeah, Simon I think Sinek. it's Simon yeah, Sinek. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think he met Jerry Dobin. <laughs> <laughs> that was Jerry's whole mantra. And this was 83, 1983. Yeah. And that led, we developed a postcard program, literally old school, and we mailed out three versions of a message. And we tracked it to see which one, we had a reply attached card, which one did the best. And it was off the charts. One of them was much higher yeah. than the other two. Wow. And every single one of them spoke to our why. Yeah. And it was all about, do you have enough training to get your share of success in skincare? And skincare's a billion dollar industry. Do you know enough to get your share? And then um, the skincare industry puts more people into their own business than any other. Are you one of them? It was that kind of a thing. He nailed down, this is not about acne, sensitivity, dryness. This is about the therapist. Mm -hmm. And it informed everything we ever printed. Our very first brochure, which was in black and white, which everyone thinks now it's so cool that all our packaging's gray and white, black and white. It's like film noir cool. No, we couldn't afford full color separation printing. It was those days. Mm, I love stories. So like we that. did everything in black and white. Yeah. So anyway, so it's it, like it, not being able to do what you exactly. want to do creates the ingenuity. Yeah. yeah. And you make it cool. Yeah. So our very first brochure, it's that the title headline was Dermalogica, more than a product, a complete program for profitability. Mm. And that was to skin therapists. We were not talking wow. to right. the end consumer. Yeah. Wow. They were talking to the end consumer. We were talking to the salon owner and the skin therapist. Aaron and I were saying before the show, the mentality of the A-B testing, the messaging, almost creating this viral, albeit printed, but mm -hmm. viral campaign. Mm -hmm. Again, it's really looking ahead to the internet and what it brings us in terms of business. It's like yeah. conceptually, you were doing all those things. I mean, the means are different, yeah. but it seems like way ahead of its time in terms of how it was accessing and, and really using messaging mm -hmm. in that direct way. Mm -hmm. Like we might take for granted more now. Yeah, and emotional. We wanted everything to have an emotional message. Raymond gave us sort of our marketing directive. He said, we've got to be prepared to be polarizing. We've mm. got to be prepared to piss off 80% and turn on 20%. We can't try and people please, yeah. because if we do, we will end up as mediocre. Mm -hmm. yeah. We'll please everybody a little bit, but no one is, you know, starkly attached or detached from the brand. And we took that as our marching orders. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, my really my main question is, where did you take Jerry to dinner? <laughs> oh my god, this guy was so fantastic. He was with us for a number of years. And this did you actually end up employing him? No, he was always a consultant. He okay. didn't want to work for anybody. He told us I'm unemployable. I'm not working for anybody. <laughs> we paid him. He came every Thursday and helped us design everything for a number of years. And here's an here's a little in, here's a little insight to this this person. He had a massive IRS tax bill due and he had enough money to pay it. He'd been working and he sat with us in our office and he said, "Now, Raymond and Jane, do I pay my tax bill or do I take my wife to the George Sank in Paris? No contest. I'm going to Paris. <laughs> and he did. I mean, he was such he was a larger picture. than life person. I love that. Yeah, he was great. So that spirit is wow. part of our culture too. Start to Sale is brought to you by our founding sponsor, Smartwater. So we both run businesses. We manage the day to day. And now we host a podcast. We're working hard. And so does Smartwater. It's vapor distilled for purity with electrolytes for taste. It's water that helps keep us hydrated as we work hard. And look, you work hard and you deserve a great tasting hydrating water. 
Learn more at drinksmartwater.com. Okay, so Raymond and Jane, you guys start this business as a couple. You grow it. You know, you said life partner, you're married, you're doing all these things together. Um, I have to say, you know, I can relate to some of the uh, (laughs) founding the business with the significant other. Um, Do you think, was there something about the two of you and your chemistry that influenced the culture? And, you know, just just tell us about that experience. I think so many are curious about growing a business with your significant other. Well, Raymond and I had worked together in South Africa. He ran the cosmetic division for a large pharmaceutical company in South Africa. And I worked uh, running the skincare education piece for Redken, which was an American privately owned brand then, now owned by L'Oreal, but then it was owned by Paula Kent Meehan. And um, so he wasn't my boss. He was my boss's boss's boss. But in any event, uh, we met each other and and in meetings, we were working together and instantly there was a a chemistry spark around the work. You know, Raymond is pretty fierce and he would, you know, say something and say, that's, we're not doing that, that's ridiculous. And I would say, to someone else you'd say, and I'd say, I don't think that's ridiculous at all. I think there's a good idea there. What about if we did this, this, this? I wasn't afraid to speak up. And I also think working in a salon for so many years, you learn to go up to complete strangers mm-hmm. and, and greet them and then take them into a small dark room and ask them to remove all of their clothing. And then you approach them from behind their head and say, just relax. <laughs> I mean, you have to be pretty bold to be able to so win true. someone over. It's so true. You know, I mean, it's just about the most frightening thing that can happen to a human being <laughs> so so I was a pretty so fearless and he saw that he liked that we worked very well together enormous respect for each other when he then emigrated I emigrated to the states sometime later six months later and we decided we were going to be together as a couple and we were going to start a business we already had laid out our guardrails for working together because we had a very good working relationship. And I think that was really critical because I have a very uninformed theory. I mean, I have nothing to prove this, but I've seen <laughs> I love that people <laughs> who work together and then start the business and they have a relationship, if they work together first, I think that they do well at work and they tend to take work home and it leaks into their personal life. People who started their relationship first and then start working together, that personal relationship leaks into work, which is not so good. So for for Raymond and myself, we were always as passionate about the business and what we were doing. I think some of our team probably thought we were getting divorced any minute because we (laughs) would go at it the same way that we did when Mm. we worked together. That was our style. And then when we got home, we would still continue talking about Mm. it. Mm -hmm. But the point that we always joined on was this value system, the purpose, the mission, the culture, the value system. We always knew that was our common ground and we reached it every time. But my God, we would have a thrash out, you know, back and forth about what we thought was the best way to get there. And the dynamic worked. Ray and I did a call this morning and it was a a recorded call with a group in London. And we were as excited talking about women's entrepreneurship and all like lit up and we were on this speakerphone and we were going at it. I think we kind of forgot that we were even talking to someone in London. We were talking to each other and saying, yes, that's right. I, I agree with you. That's so true. I mean, we were like back and forward and it was it was great. That's that's still there for us, and and it's the thing that built the business, and of course the culture of the business. We used to say to the team, "We're not fighting. We're having a fierce conversation, 
and you better be prepared to have one too. If you're sitting mm. at this table, you are expected to have an opinion and defend it. And if you are not prepared to do that, then you are an audience member and you can go and take a yeah. seat in another room. You know, if you're in a meeting, well you've got to be part of it. You can't sit there like an audience. You've got to jump in. Yeah, I also think heated argument for me with other people who are creative and collaborators yes. and work produces the best results. The best. Yeah. I was going to say the same. the most exciting. Freya, who's, you know, co-founder of Cool House. Yes. And of course, we're married. Absolutely. We would really hash it out. But yeah. she always says, if you get to a higher ground from that, then yes. it is worth everything. And I think when you have that love and that respect, it actually allows you to fight it out a little harder because, yes. you know, you can really yes. get into it because you trust that there's yes, that, you can be that deeper respect. Yeah. yeah, you can be fearless. And again, not rude or unkind but you can be yeah. fearless maybe and a little rude here and there if you, little, you know. maybe a little rude <laughs> <laughs> well i don't my business partner is not my romantic partner but we get into many assume that you are yeah, we, everyone thinks we are we are not yes. uh but we get into almost, that passion it's I mean, we yeah. are passionate yeah. about yes. what we do and we will get into heated loud debates and fierce conversations fierce, fierce <laughs> conversations really good but that. they ne but you know, it, people are always surprised because we'll get into this fierce conversation and then finish, decide what we're going to do. And then I'll be like, you want to go get some pizza? Yeah, yeah. Everyone's exactly. like, how can you just you turn it You have to get over on? it quickly. Yeah. But yeah. that's being an entrepreneur yeah. too. You, totally. you're Absolutely. withstanding the roller coaster up and down and you, you just get it. Oh, yeah. You, you Listen, you can't be a sulker. You can't be a grudge bearer. You no. can't. Well, I suppose you can be. But I don't know how you can do that and be successful right. with I agree. your team. It's true. I'm never saying argument or fight again. I'm only saying fierce conversation. I love Absolutely. it. Fierce conversation. Yes. Fierce conversation because you care. You care about this. Yeah. You care about. And it's not, oh, I care about the top line. I care about how many sales. Sales are a result of doing something that you are passionate about and you care about. The monetary reward, money, that energy comes back at you because you are doing something mm. that is putting energy out into the world. I'm convinced of it. Oh, I agree. So 33 years, yeah, right? You were building it yeah, with Raymond and a team, obviously. Yeah. You turned Dermalogica into the number one professional skincare brand in the world. Mm -hmm. And then you decided to sell it. Yeah. So I wish it had been that easy. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we just decided. Right. It was years. It was five years of agony. Well, that was going to be back one of my forth. questions is, yeah. what was that process like making that decision? Because growing and running a business is like running a never-ending marathon. Yeah, a marathon and a sprint. And yes. you forget, and to, to the point that you're you forget that you're running the marathon and sprinting the sprint. Yes, thirty three years of this, thirty three years of fierce conversations of relationship yeah. building and all of that. At what point did you start really considering a sale? Well, Raymond and I didn't start the company to flip it and sell it, right? So we hadn't really even thought about it. We, you know, I was 24 when we started. He was 33. So we had a whole lives ahead of us and it was an endless runway. And so people would call us competitors and say, we want to come talk to you. We'd say, we're not even taking a call. We'd have no interest in taking a call. Because if we go and, if we even if we have a phone call with one of these competitors, then we're just going to get all excited about what we're doing and they'll be even more convinced that they should get into our market space. So we're not even talking to them. So the years went by. And then we decided we didn't want to be running the day to day every day. It was tiring. It was exhausting. We were in multiple hundred odd countries. We'd had two daughters by then. We just decided we needed to bring in people to, to run this for us, with us and for us. And, and so to begin with, we thought we we're going to hire a CEO. 
And of course, you fall into the trap of the entrepreneur who started their own business of thinking, you know, look, we've done a really good job. We're really proud of what we've done. But there clearly must be people out there who are fantastic at this and they can take it to the next level. I don't think there probably are now. Trust me, we tried. I think that when you bring in somebody from a corporate background into your entrepreneurial company, it's enormously difficult for them. You're unpleasable. And if there's two of you, I was <laughs> myself, and you're married, I mean, it's an insurmountable, you know, sort of um, uh, really disapproving, big, conversation. Yeah, yeah, disapproving <laughs> thing. So I think it was inevitable that the route of going a CEO, bringing someone from the outside in, wasn't going to be successful. And we realized the problem was not the two CEOs that we tried. It was us. You know, you, you're an entrepreneur, you cut a suit according to, you know, your your style. So you've got one arm longer than the other. If you go and get a jacket made, do they cut it that way so that it looks good on you? But when someone else tries to put that jacket on, it's not cut for them. It doesn't fit them properly. And that's how an entrepreneurial business is. So we, we dithered around for about five years with two CEOs that tried their best, but it wasn't working and we weren't growing and we were getting frustrated. And we said, okay, so then what are our options? Do we continue to run it? Well, the death rate's holding steady at 100%. So at some point, we're going to have to have made a plan. Yeah, It's negligent to our team and negligent to our children to, to risk that. We already decided neither of our children, neither of our girls were going to come into the company. It's a burden to have to take over your parents' legacy, in our opinion. Interesting. Did they want to at all? Have Not at that stage, it? but now I can see that they actually would have been really brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> of course, you know. So, but what we decided was if one of the girls or both of the girls said, oh my gosh, we really want to have our own skincare company, we will say, great, you come up with a whole idea, we'll help you, we'll, you know, support you, we'll connect you to people, but you are doing your dream. It's not Dermalogica, that was our dream. That was my story, they're not skin therapists, so how could it authentically be their story? So we took that off the table. We were highly profitable and we owned the company 100%. We didn't need wow, outside so funding. so amazing. Yeah, amazing. we did not need any venture capital, we didn't need a partner. We don't play well in the sandbox. I don't want to be someone else's partner. Forget that. So we literally said it's either an IPO, oh my, terrible, awful. And I spoke to uh, Lynn Kirby, who was then uh, the the CEO of, of Ulta, and she said, do not do an IPO. And we wouldn't anyway. We just don't want shareholders. If I don't want to report to one person, I can't imagine reporting to hundreds of <laughs> Millions, thousands. Millions, right. God. Terrible. So no. So we said, okay, it's going to have to be a strategic acquisition. And uh, we sat down and we first met with um, with the attorneys that were going to lead us through the process, um, Skadden Ops. And uh, the mm -hmm. only reason we met with them, well, not the only reason, they're fantastic, but but the guy lived across the road from us. We liked that kind of thing. So we said, have I mean, you did have success with Jerry. Exactly. We learned from Jerry. <laughs> so we said, Brian, have, have you know breakfast with us. We want to talk to you about how this process works. He then led us through it. We found the banker and LA. We wanted LA everybody. And then... Mm. They told us, you've got to do a book. We said, forget that. We're not doing that. Forget it. We're not going to write a book selling a horrible God. So we never <laughs> sold Dermalogical. We said, we're a found product. We're not a sold product. So we did a very unusual approach of what we called our whisper campaign. We wanted to whisper into the ear of the CEO of the top companies that we knew would be the usual suspects that we might be thinking about 
potentially doing something with the business. And that was enough. That was enough blood in the water. And, uh, great blood. And every, great, great blood. Great and blood. everyone swarmed. <laughs> and here was our litmus test. We said, okay, we want to have dinner with the CEO of each of these potential companies, not to discuss the acquisition, just to get to know each huh. other. We need a chemistry check. Because in that, everything is revealed. And every one of them was a lovely person. And we knew right away, first of all, they had to select where we were going to have the dinner. Oh, man, I just love. <laughs> yeah, that all tells you everything. The, I, I like that. Yeah. I like thinking about you exfoliating the back of your arms yeah. at home while Raymond's getting ready for bed. And you're like, yes. you know, thinking about how you're going to do the chemistry check. I love it. Yes. So I'll give you an example. One of the top suitors took us for a wonderful dinner at Per Se in New York. And it was a huge, you know, tasty menu, beautiful champagne. It was really lovely. And it was very, you know, impressive in that way. Um, Paul Polman from Unilever flew commercial to LAX, took an Uber from LAX to Dermalogica, came in on his own with no one else, and we brown bag lunched it. And the first thing he said to me was, Jane, I'm a little obsessed with Fight, which is our nonprofit initiative, financial independence through entrepreneurship. And I said, well, Paul, I'm a little obsessed with it too. And we just knew Starting with him, he's at the top. He's CEO of Unilever. Unilever was an unexpected, that was so odd. I mean, our own team said, why are they on the list? And I said, I just have a really good feel. They've got the sustainable living plan, which is baked into everything. I, I, I really think they need to be on the list. I want to hear what they're doing. And what we didn't know then, but he revealed to us, was they saw Dermalogica as being the cornerstone of a brand new division for them called Prestige, which they didn't have any experience in, and they didn't pretend that they did. They said, we need you. We need founder-led brands because we don't know how to do this, but we can help you in a lot of ways. We will leave you in a bubble, and we will... We will grow you with you all involved. And if you want to stay on and lead it, you can. And if you want us to jointly decide on a CEO, we will. And that's how it worked. And now Unilever Prestige has Dermalogica. It has Kate Somerville, Hourglass, mm -hmm. Murad, Living Proof, Wren. I mean, beautiful founder-led yeah. brands. And, uh, you know, it's it's been a, a great journey and, a, and the right choice for us. And I think you'd mentioned also the level of representation of women in leadership roles and yes. on the board of Unilever. Yes. Was that a factor at the yes. time or something you came to know more of later on? Or, yeah, that's the pretty board amazing. right now I think it's 48%. And I said to Paul, you know, that's fantastic. Yeah. He said, not really, it should be 51%. <laughs> He's right. Um, same all the way through the supply chain, the gender equality, really strong. I said, you guys should do an ad about that. I don't think people know about it enough. But of course, it's a public company, so the statistics are all there. And this idea of every brand has to have a purpose, which is the Unilever mantra, and that purpose has to be funded through the marketing budget. It doesn't get hived off to some person, usually mm -hmm. a woman, in HR and a tag along bit of Lego that you stuck on the company. It has to be baked into the DNA of the company, which is why Dermalogica was a perfect acquisition for them, because our purpose is is baked into our mm -hmm. DNA. And so that was a, a good blueprint for other founder-led brands as well. Are you the CEO now? No. That was t it was time. We said to them, we will stay on and, and stay as long as it's working for both of us. And it's a great relationship. But the, the team need a CEO that's mm -hmm. there every day. They need a leader. And so I 
Raymond and myself actually identified the person that we thought could be great uh, and our first choice turned out to to equally be interested and our CEO is Aurelian Lease and uh, he was then based in San Francisco and was with Benefit and we loved that entrepreneurial style completely different brand and we liked the work that was being done and he joined uh, as our CEO and that happened a few months after the acquisition and he still leads. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. What an amazing story. So cool. Yeah. Thank you. Um, it's been a great, it's, yeah. it is It is great. I mean, yeah. we really, to see that journey and to see the people that, you know, were with us and and to have the opportunity to share that success with our team and in person and what we did every day and also share it financially was really um, important to us and yeah, I can tell journey. even your specific memories of names or mm-hmm. details of oh, yeah. colors of clothing, how much yeah. it means to you, yeah. how much it's always meant to you. Yeah. It's awesome. And I, I also think Domologica is perfectly poised now in what I call this. We're in an industrial revolution with tech. But now that, you know, we, we know we're into it and we're only scratching the surface and now we're heading into, you know, avatars and bots and AI and everything else. I love that, you know, that equal and opposite reaction, I believe is humans being more human. This is why we're talking about kindness and empathy and vulnerability because we all realize we've got a missing piece here somewhere Mm. that we have to correct. More important than ever. More important than ever. And I see it. What I'm so reassured about is 10 years ago, I I saw tech rising and and I was really dismayed about the disconnection that was happening. And now we've got that generation are now the we generation. I think they're amazing. And this fresh new generation after the millennials, who I think were a bit more the me generation, this we generation realizes they've, they're growing up in an epidemic of loneliness and depression and anxiety. They need human connection. So even if you look at people say, oh, retail's dying. Retail's revamping. Old retail's dying, yes. Old way, gone product on a shelf and try and flog it gone because Amazon's going to do it and they're going to do it quicker but what can we do as human beings that only humans can do people say oh we need a brand experience no you don't you need a human experience I totally 100% agree with that we own you know big shops yes but we have a 70% return rate and it's yes, yes, we have delicious cookies, but it's because we're that moment of joy in yes. people's day. Absolutely. And, and our baristas become friends with our clients. Yes, as they should be. Totally. They're serving them something they're going to consume. I mean, how intimate is that? Right. And we have to stop pointing to that and recognizing that. And for me, it takes me right back to Mrs. Hurd when I was 19. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she said, this is the only place anyone touches me anymore. You know, an, an avatar online can tell you what products to use for your acne, but that isn't the same as somebody touching you and telling you, We're, we've got this, we've got this together. It's yeah. okay. Yeah, it's I'm irreplicable, here, for sure. And we're going to... We're going to get your skin to its optimum level of health and condition, not beauty. It has nothing to do with that. This is about you and your health and wellness. And that now, I feel like we're more we're more current than we ever were. I think mm-hmm. the opportunity yeah. that we have to share in our industry is more important than ever. In fact, I think we've got to double down and make it more. How can we be more human? How can we have more points of one-on-one connection? Not to say that tech isn't going to, continue to take off of course it will that's fantastic but we need that equal and opposite reaction as well isn't it a comfort to know how essential it always is yes it's like 
that can never be replaced. No. And that's a good thing. Absolutely. I've come to know you in this next chapter of things, yeah. which you've got so much exciting things going on with the Rwan Foundation and also a specific initiative toward helping women entrepreneurs and really a diverse group of entrepreneurs. Um, can you speak to, to your vision there? And yeah, I'd love how, to. how your experience has informed what you're doing now? Because it's very, very powerful and cool. Yeah. So I'm an entrepreneur, obviously, but also we created our business through selling to individual small entrepreneurs. And so that I know how that business works. I know what that's like. I know how when you start and you scale. And I know it isn't about how smart you are. It's about how are you smart. It's a completely different thing. And I know that it's about the mindset and the attitude and the thinking that leads first. Action comes after. And that's the piece that I know, uh, you know, can impact. So after the acquisition, we set up the Women Foundation, which is our nonprofit. And in that, we want to do something very, very local around entrepreneurship. The whole world is going through an episode right now of nationalism. And I find it scary and I find it predictable and I find it disheartening. But I also know that we feel sometimes powerless to influence what's going up there other than, of course, with our vote. But we can act locally. And I'm seeing this huge upsurge in localism. City mayors have never been more powerful or influential. We're interested in our neighborhoods, our schools, our streets, neighborhood, you know, neighbor next door, the whole newsletter, you know, online thing. We're saying, okay, I don't know what the heck is going on in Washington, but I sure as heck can impact what's happening here. And that's how we feel about Los Angeles. Los Angeles brought us to the party. So you always leave with the person that brought you to the party. <laughs> so we've now partnered with the Opportunity Fund and with the mayor's office. And of course, because Natasha, you're part of the Opportunity Fund's board, we've got to know each other. And I'm very excited with that relationship with the Opportunity Fund and with you. And our goal uh, that we will achieve is to focus on uh, Los Angeles entrepreneurs who are getting started, who need incubation, who need a certain level of funding come in the opportunity fund who need to be seen and need to be found and our initiative is called found la and it's basically about these small invisible entrepreneurs who are the glue of our community and they cement our neighborhood they are the reason we want to live in that community with the artisanal bakery and the dog groomer and the florist and the salon and the little restaurant and the and 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 they're all individual entrepreneurs and if we don't support them and if they don't stay in business then we are relegated to big box and online and that is a recipe for depression. We need each other. So we want to form a blueprint in Los Angeles between us, a family foundation, and Found LA, the Opportunity Fund as a funding partner, educational partners like CSUN, and potentially UCLA or Santa Monica College, LA Trade Tech. We want to form an educational partnership with a partner and the platform of the mayor's office. We want to show that within a two-year period, we can regenerate a lot of of, of inner neighborhoods and these businesses have a social impact in those neighborhoods, a purpose to drive community. Once we have that blueprint, we want to take that out to other cities and have another family foundation, another mayor's office, 
And the Opportunity Fund is national to be able to be the thread through it all and replicate it, whether it's in San Francisco, whether it's in Austin, whether it's in Detroit, whether it's in Pittsburgh. We need local communities to work locally. And I believe we can form the blueprint of how that works. The same way that we did with Dermalogica, we're in 106 countries, but we only have five subsidiary markets. We've got distributors in those other markets. We showed them the blueprint of how to do it. And they just replicated the playbook in their market and they built their own business into multi-million dollar businesses based on the Dermalogica model. That's what I want to replicate for city entrepreneurs. It's amazing. I mean, it's so cool. It's needed and it's also, like you said, really speaking to what's going on right now, which is so wise. Mm -hmm. So Jane, every show we end by talking about a skill that the entrepreneur has learned and that has helped him or her grow a business. Is there any one skill that you think helped you and how do you break it down for our audience and so they can learn it too? So when you said skill, I immediately thought of the fact that I can wax a bikini line in about three minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm happy to break down the skill. (laughs) But I think larger than that, perhaps, is... um, I I believe a skill that I developed was the ability to deliver an unpleasant piece of news. Let's say someone has to leave the company, terminating them, uh, in a way that's empathetic and collaborative, because it has to be. Unless, of course, somebody did something outrageous and they have to be marched out the building because, you know, they're crazy. But generally, that's (laughs) not the case. And so my technique is really simple. It starts thinking about the person. And I would run into the person at work and I would say, Erin, it's good to see you. How are you? And you'd say, well, I'm fine, Jane, because I knew everyone that worked for us on a first name basis. And I said, Erin, I was thinking about you the other day. I want you to, have you got a minute? Just step in, just step in here with me. And it wouldn't be in my office. And if it was in my office, because she happened to come into my office for a reason, I went to the other side of the desk and sat next to her, always, never across a desk. And I'd say, you know, Erin, I'm really, I'm really interested. I was thinking about you and I'm curious. Are you happy here? I, do you feel happy here? And I would wait, wait through the pause. Do not fill in the gap. Wait. Now you're going to get one of two answers. The first answer is, yes, I'm very, I'm very happy here, Jane. Yeah, I love it here. I mean, I've been here seven years or two years, fill in the blank. I, I'm, re- I'm really happy. Why? Why? And I'd say, I'm really pleased to hear that, Erin. I, I think that's fantastic. I'm not seeing it in your work. And I'm not seeing it in your attitude. What I'm seeing is someone who's not happy. So we need to talk about that a little bit. You know, because something's affecting your work. Now, at that stage, something could be revealed that you were not aware of. And it could be a health issue. It could be a relationship issue. It could be a personal issue. In which case, I would say to that person, I'm really glad you shared that with me. And I you know, let's talk about, obviously, this is a personal issue, but in any way that we can help, we want to. And we need to get the work back on track. So how, let's talk about what that's going to look like. Do you need some time off? Do you need us to work with you in some way? So we go down that path. But if the person, when you say, um, I see it in your attitude and work, if they say, um, 
well, I, I mean, I don't know. I think I'm doing my best. Say, so, okay. So what we have to see, Erin, is we've got to see a turnaround within 30 days, 60 days. I'm going to sit down with your manager, whoever it is, or if they're the manager, I'm going to suggest we sit down with and I pull someone else in potentially from HR or education. And we're going to break it down and work out what we need to focus on and what we need to improve. But we have to have a turnaround because what you're delivering in work and attitude right now isn't going to achieve our greater purpose. It's just not who we are. It's not who we are as a brand. It's not who you are as a person. Now, the second answer you're going to get is, are you happy here? And you're going to say, actually, Jane, no, I'm not. I'm not happy here at all. And let me tell you why. Because I'm fed up or whatever it is. They're about to launch into a bottled up tirade. So I would (laughs) sit and let them vent until I sensed the energy ebbing slightly. And I'd say, Erin, Erin, I'm really glad you said this. And I'm really glad we're having this conversation because I could see you weren't happy from your work and your attitude. So it's the same answer from me. Mm-hmm. Your work and your attitude shows it. It shows that you're not happy. Now, Erin, I believe everyone should be happy in their work. I believe you should be somewhere that you feel is your bliss. And I also believe you're going to have your greatest success professionally and personally when you feel that way. And it's clearly not here. I think it's time we were honest with each other about that. And I think we should develop a way what's going to happen in the next 30 days, 60 days to put you in a place that you are going to be happy and it's not going to be at Dermalogica. So what's that going to look like? And let's chart out the runway of your exit into a place that you are going to be successful in. Is there a reason why you fired Aaron and not me? I know. It's like <laughs> we're ending this episode with me getting fired. It's well, the great. reason is I have said it to either of you. So I'm just so I just happy got here, I guess. Neither yeah. of you are going to be on the receiving yeah. end likely of that conversation. But you may no, have that's to have a, that was, It's so off limits to talk about or people just feel this is always a yeah. terrible thing. And, and you provide also, really good guidance there. And they start saying, you know, we start falling into the trap because we feel awkward about it. We right. feel nervous. About it. We have to create a paper trail or we have to do yep. written warnings mm. for what? Before that, we have to have a conversation. Yes. And people get so caught up about not wanting to hurt other people's feelings. And what they don't realize is when you don't talk to someone about their performance, it's more hurtful. Much, much more. Than addressing it. Yes. And it's not fair to the rest of the team. You're a captain of a ship, right? You've got to get the ship into safe harbor. So if the rigging hasn't been put up and somebody could trip over and fall off the ship, you're not doing your job and it's not safe for everyone else to be Mm -hmm. around. So you're responsible, not for just this one person, not just for Natasha, you're responsible for the 20 other people that work with you or 200 or 2000. They rely on you to make the right decision. Because if you're not making the right decision, they are going to suffer. And if you keep somebody in place who's not happy and demonstrates that in their work and behavior, they may not leave. But the three great mm-hmm. people that work with them are so fed right. up that the atmosphere is toxic that you lose your good people. So you have to you have to have the conversation, the fierce conversation. Mm. And when you're steeling yourself to have that conversation because you feel so, oh, I don't know what I'm going to say. And what if they, what if they freak out? And what, oh my God, I don't want to avoid it, avoid it. I'm not even going to go into the lunchroom today. I don't want to see her. No, stop. You're going to have 30 seconds of discomfort while you start this conversation. But once you've started it, there's no going back. And you'll come up with your own phrase. Mine was, 
are you happy here? Once I'd said it, I couldn't unsay it. Mm -hmm. And I had to be prepared to explain why the hell I asked it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So 30 seconds, just get, it's like jumping off a diving board. 30 seconds, steal yourself, go. And once you've said it, the conversation's going to take its own form. You're not going to get upset. Even if they get angry, you're going to handle it with empathy. You're going to tell them how much you appreciate their honesty. You're going to sit there. You're going to hold it steady because that's who you are. You're the leader. Amazing. And hopefully it stays with them in their next chapter yes. as a positive. And know, I have had as opposed to I yes. And I've been privileged enough to have those follow up conversations mm. and phone calls and letters and emails from people because they probably found somewhere they were happy at. <laughs> Absolutely. I let a person go in that way who was running our education department. And I knew there was something else that she would find a bliss in. She started her own business as a result. She employs many people. She's highly wow. successful in a completely different business in the pet industry. And she called me up several years later, filled me in on what had happened and thanked me because she said she absolutely was miserable and she needed to leave and start her own business. She's an entrepreneur. Wow. Yeah. Well, I could talk to you for the next yeah. 27 <laughs> hours, but we do have to end this yeah. podcast at some point. We have to let point. you loose, unfortunately. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now that I've been fired, I do want to leave. Um, <laughs> I think I'll stick around. <laughs> You're both very happy here. I can see it. But Jane, thank you so much for joining us today on Start to Sale. This thank has been you. a wonderful conversation, so educational and great to have you here. I really appreciate the opportunity and, and the opportunity to give a shout out to the industry that I really love very much. So thank you. Thanks for listening to Start to Sale. We really want to hear what you're getting out of the conversations we're having with these wonderful entrepreneurs, and we want to know what you want more of. Are there entrepreneurs that you love that you want us to talk to? Is there a resource you need? Feel free to send us an email at hi at starttosale.co or direct message us on Instagram. I'm at Erin Patinkin, and Natasha is at Natasha J. Case. We'd love to hear from you if you've been able to apply anything from Start to Sale episodes to your business. We'll be continuing the conversation on our website, starttosale.co, where you'll find resources and more. And of course, we'd love a review in whatever podcast app you use. Tell us what you think whenever you can spare the time. We'll talk to you soon. Now that we've wrapped another episode, it's a good time for our audience to drink a crisp, pure, vapor-distilled glass of water with electrolytes for taste. A big thank you to our founding sponsor of Start to Sale, Smart Water. Learn more at drinksmartwater.com.